Welcome to the Pocus Podcast. In this series, we'll be exploring the many facets of point of care ultrasound and its application in critical care and emergency medicine. We will be speaking with some of our nation's leading experts in this field, inviting them to explore their stories on how they use this incredible technology and reflect on the impact it has on their patients and clinical practice. My name is Patrick Gallagher and I'm your host. In my role as the POCUS Applications Leader for GE Healthcare in Australia and New Zealand, I have many times over been inspired by the stories, the research and the development of POCUS that I have seen and heard across all hospitals in our region. I have a passion for all things ultrasound and can't wait to share this with you. So pick up your probe and join me on this journey. Today we are lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Kylie Baker. Kylie is a consultant emergency physician at a large regional hospital in Queensland, Australia, and has been practicing bedside ultrasound since 2002. Her name is synonymous with point of care ultrasound in Australia and is an enthusiastic proponent of education in this area, currently leading the ultrasound special skills department at her place of work. Thanks for taking the time to speak to us today, Kylie. It's a pleasure having you here. Uh, It's lovely to be here, Patrick. Let's start by telling us a little bit about yourself, Kylie, and your POCUS journey. Okay, well, um, I think uh, one of the good terms I like is I'm a bit of an ultrasound tragic, and I've been, I got my first certificate for doing a course back in 2001, and it was one of the very first EFAST, no, not even EFAST, it was a FAST course arranged by Tony Joseph, who had to basically bring in some American teachers because we'd never heard of it here in Australia and I've got my certificate dating back from then and um, working at a a sort of a small suburban hospital, our stenography um, department has always been dreadfully overworked. We'd be calling them in at all hours for things and so they're extremely supportive where I was uh, to help me... uh, learn how to use the ultrasound machine and they'd even let me borrow one of the really big old machines which I would trundle around to the ED after midnight, uh, <laughs> all, all trying not to call people in after hours because, of course, being a small hospital, um, I called someone in after hours, they'd then be fatigued for the next day and that would put all the uh, time paddling up the pot. So I think I've been very lucky where I've, where I've grown up in that they've been so supportive. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, well, I suppose you would have been their friend not calling them at all hours out at 3am in the morning and, and then making them show up again at 8 o'clock. Oh, so. I, I still did occasionally <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. in my early years learning and making mistakes, but they were, they were very um, forgiving. What do you think the biggest challenges facing point-of-care ultrasound and, and how do you see them getting solved? Well, right at the moment, I think the biggest problem facing anyone medically uh, is that there's um, first of all there's too much information and we have to be very very careful of our time and what we're going to spend our attention on you know we've also got all these issues of, of information overload and then fake news you just don't know what to believe anymore and so many of us are sort of falling back on old habits where you believe what you experience firsthand or you believe people that you know personally. This doubles back, unfortunately, on, on ultrasound because there's not enough proficient ultrasound teachers to go around at the present. 
And so I, I get asked every day, or people say to me, I'd like to learn ultrasound. Can I come and learn with you? And there's, there's just not enough hours in the day. I mean, we do have uh, some wonderful online resources from all over the world that's free, but nothing quite substitutes for someone literally watching your hand movement, watching you interact with the patient, checking your pressure and watching the, the screen move. So that, that's one problem that I see. There's, not a, there's too much information. There's not enough teachers, second problem. The third problem I see is that people think that ultrasound is a huge new area that's completely new. Uh, and it's not. I mean, ultrasound started in Europe with, I think, a lot of the specialist physicians just looking at the applications that were relevant to their particular specialty because they didn't have um, uh, sonographers as a group to help them out. And so the neurologists would do just scans relevant to neurology and the obstetricians would just scan pelvic views. And so they learned a little bit at a time. Whereas here in Australia, our sonographers do everything and, and the poor doctor looking at the sonographer thinks, I'll, I'll never learn all of that. And also, I think they think that there's so much to learn. You have to learn um, what the pictures look like. You have to learn to drive the machine. You have to learn to interpret the pictures. And I think it, it's a bad way to start. I think you should only... I, I don't believe everyone will be able to do all ultrasounds. I think there are some of us who will never pick it up because we just, you know, think with our ears rather than think with our eyes. Myself, I've never been able to to get a stethoscope to work happily other than donging people's reflexes with it. But what I mean is I don't think everyone should be forced to learn ultrasounds. I think that there will be one or two people in every department who are very good. But what I would aim for what I would like to teach is the vast majority can look over someone else's shoulder and say, hey, that's a good picture, or yes, I can see what you're talking about. But I really don't expect that everyone will be able to learn to do all point-of-care applications, and people who think that that's what the aim is are justifiably frightened, I reckon. Yeah, very... Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's uh, very insightful. I like uh, James Rippey describes learning ultrasound as like learning a musical instrument. Uh, And that's exactly right. You can learn to play one or two songs, but if you practice a long time, you can play just about anything. And it certainly gets easier the more you use it. (laughs) That's a fantastic analogy. You mentioned that in the early days of your learning, you used to trundle around a machine that probably weighed the same as a baby elephant. The ultrasound technology change in the last 18 years has been very significant. Tell us a little bit about what this change has brought and where you see POCUS technology heading in the future. Well, I've just been um, actually last night teaching a case-based discussion. I was using some of the images I collected from my first little logic notebook in 2006 and seven. And the grainy pictures that I was showing up, I mean, I was really proud of them at the time. I thought they were marvellous pictures. <laughs> and the people I was showing them to last night, I uh, <laughs> didn't think so. I think a lot of uh, older doctors have seen those original uh, grayscale images and they're horrified. It looks like a swirling snowstorm. And not so many of them have seen the magnificent improvement in resolution on our point-of-care laptops that we've had over the last, even just the last couple of years, it's made 
a major difference. And um, it means that anatomy is almost instantly recognisable. That's, that's one improvement I've seen. The machines are getting smaller, faster, cheaper and more user-friendly. But I, I do know and I see how much um, AI is being incorporated in. You know, I'm not, I'm not super-friendly with the automatic uh, VTI or the automatic IVC, but I've also seen machines that uh, basically guide your hands and, or, or take the pictures for you and reconstruct the heart for you. I, I don't know that we'll need to be sonographers in the next 10 years. I think your machines will probably be capturing the images for us. Yeah, well, so maybe. I think I'm a dying breed. <laughs> I, don't, uh, I, don't think I, I, I think we're always going to need skilled operators. I, I, I think we're a long way off that, but who knows what the future will hold. Mm. Lung ultrasound at the moment is very topical. Uh, I know that you've recently finished a study on lung ultrasound. Can you tell me a little bit about that and, and what you have found out? Yeah, well, I, I really thought I was going to change the world with that one. Um, and it really taught me how much you time you need to translate knowledge. Back when I used to come around at night because we didn't have chest X-ray, one of the, the main problems we had were folk coming in severely breathless at 2 a.m. And we, we never knew at the time whether they had crushing pulmonary edema or whether they had severe COPD. And um, even x-rays are not terribly accurate in hyperacute pulmonary edema. And we'd have to call in the radiographers anyway. And we'd have to start treatment based on uh, what we could hear and what we thought. Anyway, I thought if I used the, the B-line function that Lichtenstein started back in 1996, I thought that I would solve all my problems. And so we uh, started scanning acutely breathless folk and comparing our lung scan results with the x-rays, and then with the outcomes. So I think one of the most important things about research is that you need a, a, a patient-centred outcome. And, of course, um, I think that this made it extra hard with pulmonary edema because we don't have any really good gold standard that's available other than looking at the patient chart. So I think I uh, bit off far more than I could chew I uh, did a little study at our hospital with a couple of hundred people and then uh, I tried expanding it out to two other, two other hospitals and teaching the young doctors what I thought was a pretty simple ultrasound protocol and we were simply looking for the, the B-line pattern to, as an indication of pulmonary edema versus the A-line pattern as an indication of COPD and and did this help our management and in turn did this improve the patient outcome? And I went right down into great detail of length of stay in the ED, length of stay in the hospital, cost to the ED, cost to the hospital, cost of imaging, cost of um, uh, right into the economics of it. And, and to cut a long story short, this is all with the very gracious assistance of the Emergency Medicine Foundation, uh, we didn't make a huge impact but I wasn't too disillusioned in that what we were doing was teaching real beginners how to do something and a lot of the beginners didn't have a great deal of practice. And even though we didn't make a huge impact in outcomes, we were sort of marginally better with the lung scanning, possibly marginally cheaper, but it was a line ball call. But what happened, and this is, this is my hidden agenda all along, I'll be honest now, <laughs> 
is that all, all these registrars that I taught how to plug in a machine, I taught them how to turn it on, <laughs> I taught them how to put patient details in, and I taught them how to scan the lungs. So even if my project itself didn't make huge impact, I have now trained sort of upwards of 40 people how to do a reliable lung scan, and lo and behold, it's become something really important, potentially very useful with COVID. And also, just the practice of looking at what a normal lung looks like makes you far more prepared for when you start to see variations in normal. certainly gave me heaps and heaps of practice. I, I looked at thousands of pictures of lung scans and um, if it weren't for the ethical issues, I'd, I'd love to hand them over to AI to use as, uh, as teaching and deep learning, but wasn't something we understood in terms of asking for ethical permission back then when we were starting our trial. But anyway, it certainly gave me a lot of insights into what's normal and what's abnormal in lungs. And then when COVID came along, looking at the, the CT patterns, it was pretty easy to extrapolate what we expect to see on lung scanning. With no intention of bragging, I think that the predictions I made early on about the, the patchy C pattern that you see post-euro basally has been fairly, not that we've seen any COVID here, but it's been a fairly accurate description of what's been seen and what's being sought in the, the poor countries that are struggling with the COVID. We, we had practice, we've got prepared, I've got quite a few registrars who can now handle a lung scanning probe and we're sitting right and tight waiting for the COVID to come. One of the other questions that sort of you sort of touched on earlier about teaching the young junior doctors, what advice would you give someone starting their POCUS journey? And obviously you mentioned that they need to know how to turn the machine on. That's the first step. But what are some of the other steps that, that come after that? Well, there's not going to be enough live teachers for a long time. There's wonderful stuff on the internet that you can find and read and watch. But mostly you've got to teach yourself and, and the very best teacher you can find is actually going to be your patient. And so you need to, to do your scan and you need to ask your patient permission to follow up their notes because by finding out their outcomes, you can then look back on your pictures and say, hey, that's what that was or that's what that meant. And to do that, of course, it means you absolutely must save your images, label them, store them so that you can go back and audit them. That, that's the way I've taught myself over the last 15, 20 years when I haven't had a mentor. And then apart from that, the only other thing that I think I really try and hammer home to people is to move the probe slowly with small, careful movements but look wide, look all around the picture and then make another small movement because time and time again when I teach and I teach frequently at the Australian Institute of Ultrasound, we see people who've um, picked up a probe and tried to manage themselves and they sweep the probe back and forth. It feels like you've gone around the world three times or feels like you're getting seasick in a boat when you just watch the screen and watch it teeter side to side. Your whole life flashes before you. <laughs> And I think people miss tiny things because they don't realise that a small movement of the probe's face translates to quite a, a wide arc within the patient. And so I think the best bit of advice I've ever 
had given to me was make the movement small. Watch carefully. Yeah, that's a great one. I'm sure that you've seen countless perplexing and rare ED presentations over the years. Is there one standout case that POCUS really made a difference to their diagnosis and, and then their outcome? The one that sort of hit me emotionally the most was a, a young woman who came in with upper abdominal pain. Been going on for three months or so. She was losing weight. She was vomiting. The GP couldn't figure out what it was. The GP had done lots of tests and scans and in desperation had sent the poor young lady up to us with with her formal imaging pictures. And back in those days, it was a sort of a an A4 sheet full of thumbnails. And I glanced at the thumbnails, which sort of didn't make a lot of sense. And just one of them had a sort of a hole in it. And I, well, this poor young lady had been in a lot of discomfort and she she hadn't been shy about voicing her discomfort. You could hear it all down the ward. And when that happens, we prescribe, generally prescribe non-opiate um, painkillers. But I looked at the, um, the pictures she'd brought and I suddenly saw something and I thought, oh, gee, that looks really strange. And I rushed into the room just as about, they <laughs> just had the ampoule of the non-opiate um, drug about to go into the drip. I said, just stop, immediately stop. You know, I pinched off the drip, uh, grabbed the point-of-care machine and put it down on her lower abdomen. And there was quite a large baby there. <laughs> um the poor lady had thought she was infertile. She she told the GP that she couldn't have babies. And so no one had um, looked to see uh, further down beneath the belly button. And the reason it scared me and the reason it still gives me the cold shivers is that medication we're about to give this may, may have had a very bad effect on the baby. And so to me, uh, that that's one of the things that, I remember to this very day just getting there in time and uh, pinching off that drip and then saying, hey, look, um, congratulations, you're going to be a mother. Yeah, wow. That's, um, yeah, that is, does sound that it would haunt me for, for, for a long time. So probably yeah. saved two lives that day. Yeah, we're well, so close. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat today, Kylie. Is I've gotten a lot out of it and I'm sure that our listeners have. Would you like to take this opportunity to thank some of the people that have helped you on your POCUS journey? <laughs> yes. Look, I've got to thank Sue Davies. She was the founder of the Australian Institute of Ultrasound and she was very strong personality. People who know her will agree with me. And you have to be a strong personality. You teach recalcitrant doctors to do things the right way. And she encouraged me and kept encouraging me and kept teaching me more and more things. And I think without Sue, I would never... I've gotten this far. So if I was to say thank you, thank you, Sue Okay, great. Well, thanks again, Kylie. All the best, Patrick. Lovely to talk to you. The POCUS podcast is proudly presented by GE Healthcare. Opinions expressed in these episodes are solely the guest's own and not necessarily express the views and opinions of GE Healthcare.